0: We're going to turn to Psalm 36, and Psalms is easy, easy to find because it's just about in the middle of the Bible. And so if you open up to the middle, you can get right to Psalms. And then uh, we're in Psalm 36, and if you need a Bible, we have one available right when you walk in. You can use your mobile device. Uh, they, they have a lot of free apps. Uh, what is it, version. Uh, I believe they have a CSB version that's available on the App Store, and yet any one of those will get you there. While you guys are turning there, Let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, we just, um, we gave you our hearts in worship, Lord. We came before you uh, just singing your praises. And now, Lord, we want to turn and, and, and give you our focus in the word, Father. And we ask that you would speak to us from it, Lord. That Speak to us the, the life that we need, the, the satisfaction that we need, Father God. Lord, that we would, Desire to come to you for life and not go to any other fountain. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 36, I've titled the message, Fountain of Life. Now there's a myth of a spring that restores the youth of one who drinks it. This myth has captivated the imaginations of many across the centuries of human history. It's called the Fountain of Youth. And I first learned about this myth when studying the age of exploration in history class when I was in high school um, last year. Or a few years ago. Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon was the first governor of Puerto Rico. But he was searching for the fountain of youth when he traveled to Florida in the year 1513. But there's many other legends and things of people seeking after all the way back prior to the fifth century BC. You see, it's this offer of vitality and eternal life that it captivates everyone. Everyone's on the lookout for it. And Its only offer is to extend life here on this plane, here in this life. Many people think that a full and fulfilled life is one in which there is enough time to do all that is in your heart, to do enough that just to all your heart's content. And so here's what people do. Everybody's looking for the next potion, the next lotion, the next powder, The next cream that promises to restore youthfulness, health, and anti-aging. I have a secret for everybody. It's all a vain excursion. It's all vanity. But I think what the Lord wants to speak to us here tonight is that the Bible offers something that is obtainable and substantially more fulfilling and eternal lasting. It's not the fountain of youth. It's the fountain of life. The fountain of life is able to make a person happy, healthy, and alive forevermore. The fountain of life refreshes and regenerates us. We read in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, it says, He, Christ, saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out His Spirit on us abundantly, Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. The fountain of youth is a myth. It's not real. You won't find it. But the fountain of life is a reality. It's attainable for all who are spiritually thirsty and for all who come through Jesus Christ. In John 4:14, 4, Jesus told the woman at the well, he says, whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up for him, springing up in him for eternal life. So what would keep someone from seeking the fountain of life? What draws one to trust in the fountain of life? That's what this psalm here, David gives a contrast for the one without the fount of life and the one who knows and drinks at the fount of life. So may we look at this psalm with wisdom and understanding so that we would seek to only drink from the fount of life ourselves and to leave that vain pursuit of the fountain of youth. Starting in verse 1 of Psalm 36, it says, An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked person. Mm -hmm. Dread of God has no effect on him, for with his flattering opinion of himself, he does not discover and hate his iniquity. The words from his mouth are malicious and deceptive. He stopped acting wisely and doing good. Even on his bed, he makes malicious plans. He sets himself on a path that is not good, and he does not reject evil. Lord, your faithful love reaches to heaven, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your judgments like the deepest sea. Lord, you preserve people and animals. How priceless your faithful love is, God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They are filled from the abundance of your house. You let them drink from your refreshing stream. For the wellspring of life is with you by means of your light, we see light. Spread your faithful love over those who know you and your righteousness over the upright in heart. Do not let the foot of the arrogant come near me or the hand of the wicked drive me away. There, the evildoers have fallen. They have been thrown down and cannot rise. what we first get from David is a description. And here's the description. It's of the deceitfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of sin. In the first four verses, he says, an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked person. Dread of God has no effect on him for with his flattering opinion of himself, he does not discover and hate his iniquity. The words from his mouth are malicious and deceptive, and he stopped acting wisely and doing good. And even on his bed, he makes malicious plans. He sets himself on a path that is not good and does not reject evil. So this psalm, if, if you remember all those italics underneath that chapter and that uh, bolded subheading, if, if your Bible is divided into subheadings, that italics title, that is scriptural, And so the title for this is For the Choir Director, and I want you to notice that choir director is not capitalized here, and it's not the chief choir director. So this one is just to the choir director. It's to be sung in a congregational setting, and it says it's a psalm that is of David, meaning David wrote it. And I want you to see, that it says it's written of David, the Lord's servant, Though David was a warrior, a musician, a prophet, and a king, David refers to himself as the Lord's servant. No one ever rises above this status. But with the God we serve, there is no higher status either. You see, no matter who or what you are, in the Lord, you are always the servant of the Lord first and foremost doesn't matter if you're the greatest senior pastor to ever live. You're still a servant of the Lord. doesn't matter if you're the most talented musician in the world. You're still a servant of the Lord. If you are someone who comes to church and lives your life the best you can for Christ, raising your family and and, and doing all those things and fulfilling all those things, you are still a servant of the Lord. Now, David's explaining the birthplace of this psalm. Why, why do we have Psalm 36? He tells us, he says, there's an oracle within my heart. And the oracle is a whispering. It's an announcement or a declaration, a decision that comes from within that is spoken from another. This oracle is a declarative oracle within his heart, spoken to his heart from the Lord. And this oracle is concerning the transgression of the wicked person. Transgression being the evil doing or the uh, wicked doing. A transgression is when you violate a standard or a set of law. And it's it's an evil doing, whether it's a violation of the law, the duty, or the moral principle. And here's the oracle's truth the transgression of the wicked one, the reason why it's there, the reason why it continues on, because dread of God has no effect on the wicked person. Literally, that could be translated, there is no fear of God before the eyes of the wicked. All sin flows from this oracle. You want to know where wickedness comes from? Wickedness is born from the absence of a fear of God. See, wickedness begins and it grows from a rejection of God or an ignorance of God, not taking God into account. This is what Paul was trying to get across when he was writing the letter to the church in Rome. He writes in Romans 3.10, it says, as it is written, there is no unrighteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers venom vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. See, the wicked person lives as though God is non-existent or that he doesn't matter. They live as though there will be no accounting before God at the end of their life. Psalm 14.1 says, it is the foolish who says in their heart, there is no God. Because they say there is no God, they are corrupt, they do vile deeds, and there is no one who does good. You cannot reject God and walk in righteousness. It's impossible. You see, the denial of God has a truly profound impact on the way a person walks in life. The choices, the decisions, the things that they do without God are directed elsewhere. The next several verses are going to provide a description of the lifestyle habits of the wicked. You see, sin, after deceiving the person on the existence or the importance of God, then sin begins to deceive further by flattering the wicked. Sin deceives us by flattering us. And here's what flattery is. Flattery is dishonest praise that seeks to cover or ignore faults this is when we say to ourselves the sin that we did that violation of god's law or moral conduct we say oh that was an oops well i made a mistake that was just a slip up or worse yet we say that's just who i am we start to make excuses for it and rather than to convict ourselves of it and to get rid of it. And so when we ignore God and we say God is of no consequence, we begin to flatter ourselves and we start to see sin as being less than what it truly is, a complete and total transgression against a living God. And so one begins to see themselves not in the light of God's holiness, but in the light of our own deception. We all tend to minimize our own faults, right? We see our major flaws in a much better light than we should. And we see ourselves better than we truly are when we line ourselves up to God's revealed light. It says that sin so deludes that one does not discover, that one does not determine the existence, that does not come to the knowledge of the presence or the absolute fact of, their own iniquity it also deludes in that what iniquity is seen it's not hated it's rather accepted and in our day we might even say it's celebrated in deuteronomy 2019 It says, when someone hears the words of this oath, see, God is speaking an oath to the children of Israel. He says, you need to follow all my statutes. You need to follow all my laws. I'm going to lead you into the land and I'll bless you and I'll I'll take care of you. And if you don't, then you're going to have it taken away from you. And then he says, when someone hears the words of this oath, he may consider himself exempt, thinking I will have peace, even though I follow my own stubborn heart. He's saying, there are some who are going to say, it's okay if I do what I want to, It doesn't matter, but he says plainly, this will lead to the destruction of the well-watered land as well as the dry land. He's saying it will bring destruction to live in complete disobedience. Now, I draw our minds back to Genesis chapter three in which there was the incident that happened in the garden of Eden. Back at the beginning of humankind, Adam and Eve are in the garden. Everything's perfect. God has told them, you cannot eat from this tree. For if you eat from this tree in that day, you will surely die. And Genesis chapter three says, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. She says, but what about the, what about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden? God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die. The serpent said, she says, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. When we leave God out, when someone leaves God out, does not consider God when making decisions in their life and choosing how they're going to run their life, you can't say, well, just listen to God. And so here's what the wisdom of man says. Listen to your heart. That's all that's left. Listen to your heart. But one's own heart, because of its wickedness, deceives them. Jeremiah talks about the heart. He says the heart is more deceitful than anything else. It's incurable. Who can understand it? You see, when the wicked does not fear God, but instead displaces God, then he becomes the center of his own existence and thus self-deluded. And here's, you do what makes you happy. Follow your own heart. Do what you want to becomes self-deluded in that. Losing the reference point to determine good and evil, the wicked person is unable to detect and thus hate their sin. Because they can't detect and hate their sin, here's what happens. It just continues. Sin just continues to multiply in their life. The wicked person becomes unable to speak truth, unable to be wise, or even to do good. Jeremiah had this message from the Lord as he was speaking to the people. He says, my people are fools because they do not know me. They are foolish children without understanding. And they are skilled in doing what is evil, but they do not know how to do what is good. See, so entrenched in sin are they that even at rest, they're plotting more sin. They plot evil while they rest. It's evil in the day. It's evil at night. They're committed to the course of evil plots. And it's not merely drifting into evil. But what David describes here is that even on his bed, he makes malicious plans. This isn't drifting into evil. This is inventing ways to be evil. Evil. And so the evil and wicked person becomes unable to reject evil, unable to reject wrongdoing. This is the one who believes that black is white, up is down, good is evil, and evil is good. We have a lot of that in our day today, where we are seeing people call good evil and calling evil good and celebrating it. Why? Because they have chosen to ignore the existence or the consequence of God. Isaiah 65.2 says, I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the path that is not good. What's the path that's not good? Following their own thoughts. Because when we choose to deny the existence of God, deny the importance of God, and we live apart from God, all we're left with is ourself. Proverbs 30, 12 says, there is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet it is not washed from its filth. In Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. For the wicked person, truth is error, joy is misery. And the one whose thinking is twisted this way would be described as insane. And they are. They're spiritually insane. They've set themselves on a path that is not good and they've abandoned themselves to a godless, depraved mind. And then David moves us to the next part of his psalm. The delightfulness of God. In verse 5 and 6, David writes, he says, Lord, your faithful love reaches to heaven, your faithfulness to the clouds, and your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your judgments like the deepest sea. Lord, you preserve people and animals. As David moves on from the oracle of the sinner to consider the character of God, um, I, I think he's kind of wondering, because he knows God, And he's wondering, perhaps, why would the wicked not fear or consider God? God deserves to be considered, especially when you consider all of his great character qualities that far surpass anything a mere man could hope or do. The delightfulness of God attracts us to seek him as the source of every blessing from the depths of depravity. David leaps to the heights of God in his abundant blessing towards those who, Who seek him. The first character is, he he shares that God's faithful love is vast and immense. This is something that we still will never fully comprehend this side of heaven. David first notes that God's faithful love and faithfulness is vast and immense. His faithful love, remember again, faithful love always refers to the Hebrew word chesed it points to the covenantal love of God that loyal covenantal love and David starts off pointing he says he says lord all caps yahweh y h w h the tetragrammaton the covenantal name of God and then he speaks of the covenant love of God tying the two together to speak of his immense vast his unending He's speaking of his unconditional love. And he describes that love as reaching to the heaven with a picture that it's so vast, it's so immense, as his faithful love and compassion. It stretches to heaven. It is stretched so far beyond human sight. This is why we can't fathom what it is to be unconditional in love and to be so faithful in that love and to continue in that love, to see the promise of God that even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. And speaking of his faithfulness, David then goes, God's faithfulness is inexhaustible. It's natural to mention God's faithfulness along with his faithful love. They go together. But the faithfulness speaks of God's steadfastness, God's security and permanent uh, stature, the, the trustworthiness of God's word. God's faithfulness is so substantial, it reaches to the clouds, it reaches to the sky where the clouds form and the clouds hang out. God's faithfulness is limitless and it reaches to the sky and definitely here the sky is not the limit. God's faithfulness is important because it's through his faithfulness that he keeps all his promises. The promises that God is consistent, that God is never changing that when God has declared something, it will happen. When he has promised something, it will happen. And we hold on to the faithfulness of God, and it's needed for us to hold on to that because God's faithfulness is inexhaustible. That means we can keep coming to him for more, and we can keep depending upon him for more. So he goes from his faithful love to his faithfulness. Then he speaks of the righteousness of God. God's righteousness is impressive, yet immovable. He describes the righteousness of God as being like the highest mountain. Other translations would say the mighty mountains. And others, in a literal sense, would say the mountains of God. You see, God's righteousness stands upright like the highest mountain. It means the righteousness is a conformity to an ethical or moral standard. And here's the thing. God himself is the standard for which righteousness is measured. We use God's righteousness as the standard for what righteousness is, because God is the only one who's righteous all the time. He always wills righteousness. He always does what is right. He always will make, accomplish in your life and in the lives of the ones that he's working with. It will always be the good in terms of righteousness. God's righteousness are like the highest mountains. They are impressive and immovable. In Psalm 71 19, the psalmist writes, He says, Your righteousness reaches the heights, God, you who have done great things. God, who is like you? And He goes from His righteousness to His judgments. You know why? Because you can't talk about the judgment of God until you speak of the righteousness of God, because the judgments of God follow along in His righteousness. God's judgments, they are immeasurable. He says, God's judgments, they're like the deepest sea. Do you know that the deepest sea is still yet to be accessed by man? This is speaking of God's judgments extending to his governance in all of his own creation. And it simply is saying this. God's ways are not our ways. Men cannot fathom the deepest sea. And neither can he understand all God does or why God does it. There are so many that struggle with this. Why God allowed something to happen? Why God didn't change something? Why did I pray and God didn't answer? Why did God bring certain trials into our lives? Why does he allow some righteous to suffer while yet delivering others from suffering? Why does one get a... a, a, terminal diagnosis while another gets healed from it. Is it because God is judged with a judgment that isn't righteous? Or is it because God is judged with a judgment that we couldn't possibly begin to know or understand because it is simply far beyond us and we have to trust God whose ways are not our own. As he says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, Verse eight, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. He says, for as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. When, when talking about this, it, it, it always brings back to an illustration that I heard. And I can't remember if it's a true illustration or if it just kind of illustrates that we can't possibly know why God has allowed something to happen. And so the story goes like this. There is a woman who, whose child was deathly ill. And I can't think of a pain greater than a mother who has to watch their child through a, a sickness that is um, calling for its, his life. And so he goes, she goes to the church and she brings her child before the church to pray over the child for, for God to heal him. And so the pastor puts his hand on the child and he's praying and he says, God, if it be your will to heal this child. And the mom says, no. You tell God to heal my child no matter what. I don't care if it's his will. And and as the story goes, the child was healed. But he grew up to do a great evil wicked that the mother simply couldn't bear. And so sometimes, perhaps, that is God's judgments that are so far beyond our ways that we can't possibly understand why he does things and why he allows things. We need to understand that his judgments are as the deepest sea. We can't plumb its depths. But we do know this. God is also the preserver of all life. This doesn't mean that he's going to save all life as, as it was we've seen in the Bible. I mean, the very first murder that ever happened in the Bible, that was an unjust murder. Not that any murder is just. That was an unjust killing When Cain killed Abel, he simply killed Abel because Abel was righteous. David acknowledges that God is the source of all life. And he also says that he's the one who preserves it. You see, God preserves, he he helps life, he saves life, he delivers life. We live in a broken world that is overwhelmed and consumed by sin that deceives everyone to think that sin is the answer to the exclusion of God. We live in an age of grace right now, so God hasn't judged sin because when God judges sin, all sin will be put away and all sinners will be put away. But right now is the age of grace in which the sinners have an opportunity to accept the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross and they ask for forgiveness and they repent of their sin. As God reveals their iniquity, they see their iniquity, they hate their iniquity, and they call on Christ to forgive them of it so that they can be saved and have eternal life. And in that, God delivers and preserves life. It's God's love and faithfulness cu- coupled with all of his other characteristics to show that he is both life giving and life preserving in his ways, beyond our understanding, beyond our comprehension, wider than the heavens, higher than the skies and the stars, and greater than the mountains, and deeper than the sea. We can't understand it. Probably why Paul wrote Ephesians 3. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And he says, I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit that, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints, what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It says, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see, Paul was one who understood God is so far beyond anything. But once we understand and once we get a taste of God, we realize Oh my gosh, he is so much more than I ever thought. And that's important. Because it is the one who's come to God. It's the one who acknowledges God. It's the one who, who has not ignored God, but has realized and accepted the existence of God and chosen to live for God that he speaks of next. Because there are blessings for the believer who lives according to, and in accordance with the knowledge of God. David writes in verse 7, he says, How priceless your faithful love is, God! He says, People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They're filled from the abundance of your house. You let them drink from your refreshing stream. For the wellspring of life is with you. By the means of your light, we see light. This is the contrast between the deceit of sin and the delight of God. It couldn't be clearer. Sin teaches us to ignore everything and just pretend everything's all right and to follow our own selves as we get further and further and further into error. The delight of God is the fact that he loves us so much, that he's provided so much, and it's through his righteousness, it's through his judgment, it's through his preservation of life that he's done everything that he's done. Sin tells the one that they don't need to live in consideration or concern for God. And in fact, they're better off if they reject and ignore God. But God's delightfulness shows us that God is far beyond what we have ever considered. What we've ever thought. That he's guided by his love and his righteousness. And his faithfulness and just judgments. That he preserves life. God doesn't waste life. Know this, in God's hand, your life will never be wasted. The hard things that you go through will never be a loss. It will never be wasted. He will always find a way to use it eternally for his glory. But David now brings out the list of blessings for the one who lives in light of God and is a God-fearing believer. David declares, he says, how priceless your faithful love is, God, and how priceless it truly is. For those who are here in Christ Jesus, we can attest to the fact that his love is priceless. You can't buy it. There's no amount of money that could purchase the love of God. But you know what? You don't have to. Because he loves you. He loves his creation. He sent his son to be the propitiation, the the appeasement of the wrath on sin so that we could be forgiven because he loves us. Notice there's a transition. He goes from the covenantal name of Yahweh. He goes from the all caps Lord to saying, how priceless is your faithful love, God. And I think that there is a detail there that we shouldn't miss, and it's this. The offering is still covenantal love, but it opens it up. It opens it up that the blessings we are about to see is open to everyone who would receive God's love. You see, God's priceless, faithful love and blessings, they're universally open to all who would receive them. That's why sin wants to delude us into ignoring God, to pretending that he's not there, because the love of God calls us to him. Now, the blessings that the believer has in God, number one is safety. These are in no particular order, but they're safety. David says that the people take refuge in the shadow of God's wings. That's a privileged position for those who call God their own. You know what happened in Jesus' day? They refused this and Jerusalem was destroyed. That's what Jesus is pointing at in in Matthew 23, 37. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you are not willing he says, see, your house is left to you desolate. In 70 AD, Israel was overrun. Jerusalem was finally conquered. And Israel was no more until 1948. 70 AD to 1948. Was that eight, eight, 1,870 years, something like that? More or less with math. The second blessing is Satisfaction. Sin would tell you that, oh, if you do this, you'll be satisfied. Oh, if you do that, that's all you need. If only you had this, that God is withholding from you. And if all you had was this, oh, your life would be great. But you know what happens when you enter into that world of sin that says, oh, just, just this little bit and you'll be fine. Well, you find out it's like everything else. Oh, I need a little bit more. I need a little bit more. Because sin always takes you further than you want to go, keeps you there longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you ever wanted to pay. So David declares that the believer is abundantly satisfied from the lavish provision of God's house. They eat and they drink at his table. I mean, Scripture is replete with verses throughout it talking about the great feast that God has prepared for us. There's parables that Jesus tells about a feast that the Lord has prepared and the people are invited to it. Literally, it's talking about the abundance of his house. It's the best. It's the fat portions. It's the prime rib. It's the ribeye steaks. You're going to have satisfaction in the truly delightful things. As I spoke of the parables, Jesus told a parable. There's a kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. And he sent his servants to summon those invited to the banquet, but they didn't want to come. And again, he sent his other servants out and said, tell those who are invited. I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention. They went away. One to his farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent out his troops to kill those murderers and burn down their city. And then he told his servants, the banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go then to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. This parable talks about what happened with the, in Israel with the Jews and rejection of Jesus, their Messiah. God had invited them to the banquet for them to participate in it, and they had rejected their Messiah. And so he said, the door is going to be open for any who would accept, any who would come. It's open for all. That is the the age of grace that we live in today. This is the time of the Gentiles. This is the day of salvation for all who would hear that invitation and come to the banquet. There's also the blessing of refreshment. For those who know the name of the Lord, those who walk in the path of the Lord, they find refreshment. And in order to appreciate the sense that David's talking on, we need to imagine people who live in a desert or a society in the desert that has no indoor plumbing. Imagine if you lived in the desert, but you didn't have running water. You couldn't just go get water whenever you wanted it. You didn't have water sitting in a refrigerator that was nice, cold, cool, and refreshing. David speaks of this refreshing stream from which they can drink their fill. Literally drink their fill of drinking until they are drunk. He says, you have all the water you could ever hope for or need for the wellspring of life is with God. That's what Jesus was talking about when he met the woman at the well in Samaria. In John 4, you find that that interaction between Jesus and the woman at the well. It says, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said, give me a drink. Because the disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And she says, how is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? You see, a Samaritan was only a half Jew. They were the ones that were conquered first and taken in. And they were intermixed with the other cultures. And so the Jews treated them like they were a half person. says, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus tells her, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket. The well is too deep. Where would you get this living water? And Jesus told her, he says, everyone who drinks from this water, pointing at the well, will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a wellspring of water springing up in him for eternal life. And we hear that imagery repeated throughout the Bible. And it comes at the end of the Bible also for all believers who are there at the end of time in which it is said... In Revelation, John says that it is said to him, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. Those who are thirsty for life, let them come to God and drink. Don't go to other cisterns. Don't go to other wells. Don't look for that fountain of youth when you have the option of the fountain of life. And the next blessing that David talks about is light. How easy it is to walk when there is light. And how disorienting it is when the light is gone. David says it is by the light of God that we see light. Lighting up our way is the light of God. Because without light, in the darkness, one can't see. You can't navigate properly. How many of us would run into the coffee table with our shin if the light was on? Or stub our toe at the foot of the bed if the light was on? Light can illuminate a room. Light is also used as a uh, el- uh, an analogy to give wisdom and understanding. And light is used to illuminate the mind or the spirit. And without the light of God, we're all spiritually blind. And Satan continues to blind our minds without the illumination of God's holy light. Paul talks about this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says, In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There is an enemy who is constantly blinding the minds of those who refuse to acknowledge, accept, or believe in God. Because here's what happened. John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It talks about how in the beginning He created everything. There was nothing that was created that was not created by Him. And then it says that the Word came down and took on flesh, became flesh and came down. But it also says that in him was life and that life was the light of men, that light that shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it, meaning the darkness cannot conquer it. The darkness is put out by it. And it continues on in John 1, 6, it says there was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify of the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light but he came to testify about the light the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world the light was coming into the world in John 8:12 Jesus speaks he says I am the light of the world anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness but have the light of life. In light of these blessings, in light of the delightfulness of God, in light of this, David finishes his psalm with a prayer. He says, spread your faithful love over those who know you and your righteousness over the upright in heart. Do not let the foot of the arrogant come near me or the hand of the wicked drive me away. There, the evildoers have fallen. They've been thrown down and cannot rise. What we see here is him asking God for protection to keep them from being able to take him away from the fount of life. Don't let them come near me. Don't let the hand of the wicked drive me away from you, God then verse 12 jumps and here's what david sees the end of time the end when the judgment comes all evildoers are fallen there will be no one who rejects god and walks in wickedness that will stand at the end of time they will be thrown down never to rise David prays a prayer for continual knowing of it and experiencing God's love. But we know Paul, Paul gave us a wonderful portion of scripture in Romans chapter 8. He says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword and you can continue on. Whatever troubles you're going to run into in life, is, is that going to separate you from the love of God? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. He says, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. He says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that will separate you from the love of God. You see, in this psalm, we see that the deceitfulness of sin is only overcome by embracing the true life Through God, you have to give up the vain pursuit for the fountain of youth and choose instead, take hold of the very obtainable, much more satisfying fountain of life through God's provision. Where do you desire to drink from? Do you want to drink from the fountain of youth or the fountain of life? Have you been so deceived by sin that you seek a drink from that which doesn't even exist, that you would pursue it all your life, never even being able to grasp it, never being satisfied by it. The invitation has come to the well that never runs dry. It flows with the rivers of living waters. The fountain of life that god offers it can be had it will sustain you it will satisfy you maybe you're here tonight maybe you've been listening tonight have you received the light of life that christ offers or do you feel like you're still stumbling around in darkness not knowing where to go how to live what to do where to guide your life The invitation is come and receive sight, receive life, that you would see your sin as God sees it, in the light that God reveals it so that you would hate that sin and turn from it and say, I don't want this anymore. And turn to Christ for forgiveness and the offer of eternal life. Maybe you're here tonight and you've already received the light. You're already drinking from the fountain of life. Let your light shine. Be the salt and light that we are called to be so that others may find the life and the light that they truly need. Jesus gave this exhortation in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you are the salt Of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He says, You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. He says, No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. They put the light on a lampstand and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven. My brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are walking in the light, we need to walk in such a way that we are revealing that light that is within us. Let us not be hiding our light. We don't want to appease a culture and and say and, and hide what Christ has done in our life the truth that Christ offers, the light that he reveals that everything that is going on in this world is backwards. And it needs to be righted as we acknowledge God. We're going to close with one last song and I just want to open up an invitation for any... who who are here tonight, maybe the Lord's been speaking to you. Maybe he's been talking about how you've been walking in darkness. Maybe he's been talking about how sin has so deceived you and deluded you that thinking that you're where the universe revolves around and that it only matters what you think. And and he's trying to reveal himself to you and he's calling you to him. I'm going to invite you to come forward. Come and, 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 and come before him and allow that light to reveal and come and drink from the fountain of life. It's simply accepting Christ and what he's done on the cross. It's coming to Christ and saying, I see the light that's been given to me. I see and I I acknowledge, I recognize my sin and I hate my sin. And I don't want to do it anymore. I'm coming to you, Christ, knowing that you died on the cross to forgive me of my sin and I ask for you to forgive me. Help me to walk in a way where I will not walk in sin any longer. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin, that you, you were in the grave and that God rose you on the third day, giving life, proving that there is eternal life found in your name. The Bible says that all who call upon Jesus' name shall be saved. And Jesus himself said that anyone who, who comes to me, will by no means be cast away. He won't throw you out. He's waiting to receive you. Will you come to him? Father, I just pray for the rest of us as as, as we're here, Lord. Help us to allow our lights to shine bright. Not so that we receive any glory or that anybody would say, oh, look at them. But Father, that we would work in such a way that through the works that we do and the light that you give us, they would see you and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.